All right, so you're out west, and now you're fighting fires. Yeah, kind of crazy how it, how it all works out. And I didn't even talk to my friends from the Appalachian Trail in a little while, so when they kind of proposed that, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that'd be good for maybe a year or so down the line. And then it just kind of, so I'm like, well, now or never, you know, it yeah. just kind of worked out. So, yeah, I came back to the States after six months in New Zealand. I was back... Uh, in May 2017, spent about a month just kind of repacking, saying hi to old friends and stuff. And then 1st of June, flew out to Boise, Idaho and met up with those guys. And we were stationed in a small town just outside of Boise, about half hour west. And it was kind of slow at first because um, one of the main differences between a contract firefighting company and, let's say, like the Forest Preserve or something is, uh, you know, the Forest Preserve, they'll give you like 40 hours a week. If you're not on fires, you're doing trail maintenance or you're doing um, garbage pickup or something else. I'm, I'm not really entirely sure, but they find hours, they do something. Whereas contract guys like us, if you're not fighting fires, you're not getting paid. So we spent like the first month, um, we had like this communal housing that worked out pretty nice. Um, just hanging out, having a party, basically playing volleyball, cooking food, going rock climbing, you know, living it up, enjoying each other's company. And then we started getting the calls. It was like the last week in in June, we started getting calls. And first I went down to southern Utah um, for the Brian Head fire. And I was there for about two weeks. And then that, that, I mean, that was like my first experience with it. So it was pretty, pretty eye-opening. Um, not as stressful as I thought. Of. Everyone's like, oh, it's going to be so stressful, so hard, you know, so dangerous. But really, you know, it's just one of those things, too, where it's kind of dramatized a little bit because people, it's so foreign. They don't know what it's like. And... Yeah, yeah, so like when the fire's happening, like what are you doing to it? Yeah. So I was working on a um a fire engine and we only had like maybe 400 gallons of water on the back of our truck and we're talking, you know, 1000 acre forest fires. I think the Brian Head was over 100,000 acres. Jeez. Something like that. So yeah. You don't this need is not like... something that you're just going to go in and just hose it down and it's easy. Don't, don't firefighter. Well, if you're going into a house with people yeah. involved in stuff, that's a different story. Yeah. There's different. There's a different crew yeah. for that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's different uh, values. I mean, you got to assess the values and what's at stake and what you're really trying to trying to do. But we, I mean, at the end of the day, saving a house or saving an acre of land is is nowhere near as important as saving a person's life. So we're not going to jeopardize any firefighters' lives just to protect a house it's not as valuable as a human life yeah so and we kind of say that like structure firefighting is is a sprint you get in you put it out as fast as no, you can so i'm saying like yeah. you learned how to be like legit like save I'd people not, if you need to firefighter um i didn't get the same training as a structure firefighter would get i just took some online courses and did a, a field day and um kind of some basic training, but I kind of look at it as the same as most of my other jobs, that random jobs that I had been doing, is you just learn as you go. You figure it out, and you you listen. You learn quickly. 
you adapt, you know, you keep your head in the game and you stay focused. And so if, I mean, if there was a life-threatening situation, it's, it would be handled by the higher-ups. It's very military um, organization. There's a chain of command and you just got to listen to your orders, do your part of the job. And so whereas like a structure fire would be a sprint, wildfire is a marathon. I mean, it, it could go all summer, months. So, you know, you're not just trying to like rush in there and put it out right away. You, you're trying to control it and contain it. So you set up fire lines, you bulldoze areas, you know, you back burn a section to, to reduce the fuel so the fire can't spread. And so being on a fire engine, um, you know, and it's, it's just like a small converted Dodge pickup truck with a 400 gallon water tank on the back. So if they had back burned a section, we would basically go in and mop it up, make sure that there's no residual heat, that it's not going to spark up at high noon or when the wind picks up and blow embers somewhere else, you know, or if there's a spot fire, maybe, you know, the fire does jump, we can go in there and try to put it out right away before it, um, gets any bigger or gets out of control. Um, but it really is like a systematic thing. Like one person, even one truck can't do a whole lot on its own. You need that organization and that structure of multiple people working together, attacking this thing from different angles, um, to really control it. And, it, and at some point too, um, you're just kind of waiting for the seasons to change, you know, like in Northern Montana or something. And some of those, um, hard to reach places. If it's towards the end of the summer, like you're just hoping for some snow to come and put the fire out because there's only so much that we can really do. If it's in some thick timber, you know, if it's got a good fuel source, it's hard to put that out. You can just kind of draw lines around it, bulldoze lines, um, retardant drops from airplanes and try to use natural features to contain it. But that's all we're trying to do is basically just contain this thing because it's so intense that we can't really just put it out by spraying water on it. You know, you got to get rid of its fuel source, try to get rid of its oxygen source or, you know, something like that. So so you got a lot of like pictures and video of, of these things that you've done. And I remember yeah. seeing one plane fly over that you actually took the video of. And it was like one of those things where... Usually somebody else has taken that video. It's never you that's <laughs> seeing this plane go whoosh, yeah. right past. So do you have an Instagram that's public or anything? Yep, I do. It's um, at Murph. Oh, and I think Murph yeah. is spelled M-U-R, the number 9-H. That Sorry. is very helpful. I was going to yeah. say, if you scored Murph, that would be <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. No, I got to throw some numbers in there to mix it up a little bit. Yeah. But. So so you made money uh essentially yeah. fighting fires for a little bit. And yeah. you, I guess you could go back to that any old time if you yep. wanted. They, they were contacting me. They want me to go back this summer, but I don't know. We'll see. Cons- but, I, but I haven't then committed to it at this yet point. ended up saving money in the guise of going where? Yeah. So one of the big um, boxes that I wanted to check before finishing some travel um, you know, and this transient lifestyle that I'd been doing for, you know, a year and a half at that point was I wanted to get certified as a yoga instructor because coming from the gymnastics background, I really enjoy teaching people and the, the athleticism, athleticism of it. 
And it's just fun, you know, sharing your passion with other people, teaching them how to do cartwheels or handstands or flips, you know. You enjoyed learning a backflip, didn't oh, you? hell yeah, man. I'd, I'd take some yoga from you too, but... Yeah. So, so I feel like it kind of naturally transitioned, for me at least, into yoga. Because once you turn 18, there's a very limited amount of gymnastics classes you can take due to liability and insurance. Most gyms just won't cover you. You can maybe do open gym type events or a trampoline park or something. Um, but there's not as much training that you can take unless you're on like a um, Olympic level um, training schedule or trying to get into that. So that's when I personally kind of transitioned into yoga and found that as a good outlet for me to keep my flexibility, keep my strength, keep training my, my balance. And, and what I liked about yoga is the kind of holistic aspect of it. It's got a philosophy behind it. You know, it's focused on your breathing and your mindset and trying to be relaxed and focused at the same time. And it just uses the exercises as a way to get in tune with your body. So the, the deeper I dove down that rabbit hole, the more I appreciated it and enjoyed it. I just wanted to keep learning more about that. So I decided I should get certified as a yoga instructor so I can teach that maybe in conjunction with tumbling and trampling, maybe to replace it, or maybe just to improve my, um, my knowledge and awareness on the subject. Um, so I was looking at courses, and it turns out it's pretty expensive to do that in America. It's like a 200-hour course. Um, it's like a month long, and that'll cost between five and six thousand dollars. Yeah, that's you know? quite a bit. Yeah, for but, but I mean, it covers your your room and board, you know, your food, oh, okay. your training, all that. Usually, it's like a package deal. But the exchange rate, you gotta you know take advantage of that. So uh, to do it in India cost me thirteen hundred dollars. That's quite a discount. Way less. Way less. And I felt like it was a bit more authentic to do it in India. Um, so I'm saving money. It's more authentic. You know, I get to see India as well. It's like, well, I probably wouldn't go to India for any other reason. Oh, man. See, I almost had it in my head when I saw you going to India. I'm like, he must have, like, been, like, obsessed <laughs> with India and really wanted to go no. do yoga. Like, who goes all yeah. the way out to India to learn yoga. You're like, no, it's very practical. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Because otherwise... I don't know. India definitely was not on the top of my list of countries that I wanted to visit. It was pretty low. India's, I mean, you just got to look at a few pictures or hear some stories. Like, it's not a vacation destination for most people, especially um, people new to, like, international travel. Like, that's not the first place you want to go. Um, but under these circumstances, it made sense. I was like, yeah, it seems like the appropriate reason. And that's, you know, that's probably the only reason I would go to India Right away is just to do some yoga training. Not to say that you shouldn't go otherwise. There's there's a lot of good stuff, but I personally wouldn't have gone if that wasn't the motivating factor. So when I got back from uh, fighting wildfires, had a little bit of money. Um, my yoga course started in December, whole month of December. Um, so I had a little bit of time before then, and I decided, well, it kind of, it had been my plan to do some traveling in Southeast Asia. I really wanted to do that as well. And one of the guys that I had met while fighting wildfires, his wife was a flight attendant for a company that my sister also works for. So one of the uh, 
things that helped make my travels possible is my sister's a flight attendant, so I can get standby benefits um, through United, which is really nice when it works out, but it doesn't always work out. And I can tell you that story when I tried to get home from India, oh, and man. it was just such a hassle. But when it works out, it's great. So me and my buddy Paul, we, we uh, had this plan of traveling, backpacking through Thailand, and kind of seeing the sights out there. And we had planned to go to Hong Kong because United flies through. There's only a few spots that United will fly through. It's like Hong Kong, uh, Japan, Singapore, Guam, you know, a few different destinations. And when we were looking at the Hong Kong flight load, we realized it's totally full and we're not going to be able to get on that flight. So we started scrambling. We're like, oh, what do we do? Like, which flights can we get on? This is where, like, standby is kind of a hassle because you got to be adaptable. It's it's not always going to work the first or second try, and you might not get on the flight. So we figured out that our best chance was to actually go to Singapore, and the best chance for that flight was the one that left in, like, three hours. <laughs> so we decided to go to Singapore like three hours before the flight left. And we're like, yep, you got everything packed? Yeah, I think we're good, all right, let's go. <laughs> so yeah, we ended up in Singapore and just kind of made our way up the peninsula going through Malaysia, um, stopping at Kuala Lumpur, and then we went up to Thailand and went to Krabi, went to the island of Kofifi, got up to Bangkok, um, got up to Chiang Mai. And one of the um, things that we had really wanted to do. Uh, my buddy Paul, he's he really likes his motorcycle, and I wanted to learn to ride a motorcycle. So, like, there's this loop that I've heard about in northern Thailand called the Mae Hong Son Loop. It's like 600 kilometers or something, and it's up in the mountains, supposed to be really beautiful, and a lot of, you know, curves and windy roads good for motorcycles. So when I told him about that, he was he was all about it. He's like, yeah, we got to do that. Like that was the highlight of his trip. And I had never ridden a motorcycle before. <laughs> and didn't need a license? No, they don't uh, check. That's no. great. So I actually, I figured it might be a good idea to take a motorcycle um, class. So I did that literally the weekend before I left for this trip. And I just, you know, learned how to work a clutch, drove around a parking lot, did some figure eights, some quick braking and stuff. But no driving in traffic next to cars or anything like that. And, yeah, now I'm in Asia. I rented a scooter a few times. That was, like, a, a good warm-up because it's automatic, so you don't really need to worry about the clutch. And you can just kind of work on your balance and acceleration. <clears throat> and so that was a good warm-up. But then, yeah, we got to northern Thailand, rented motorcycles. I kind of, like, popped a wheelie leaving the parking lot. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, whoop, there we go. Get back safe. Yeah. <laughs> like, you you know how to do this, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, you know, I, I took a class. I, was I, actually, I passed the class, I was too. actually just seeing if I could still wheelie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, been, know, a, it's been a minute it. since I've done yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So, whew, that was, yeah, exciting. And so, yeah, four days on a, on a motorcycle in northern Thailand. We went... Um, from Chiang Mai to Pai to Mae Hong Song to Mae Saviang, then back to Chiang Mai. It was like 1,800 curves, so we're like whipping back and forth. I'd started as a freshman, but I was like a senior by the time we finished that trip. It was, it was awesome. And that was one of those things that, you know, was just kind of on my bucket list. And 
I don't know. I think a lot of people will self-sabotage. Like, oh, I want to do this, but I don't know how to ride a motorcycle or I'm in a foreign country and they just make up all these excuses. Maybe I should do it back in America or maybe I should do it when I'm older or maybe I should do it when I have more money or more time. You can come up with any excuse, you know, whereas I'm kind of like, what is stopping? Like, why can't I do this? I want to do this. Are there any legit excuses like I physically can't or it's illegal or you know something like that what's really holding me back and you know there there wasn't really anything so I went for it so yeah I learned how to ride a motorcycle did that trip I went scuba diving for the first time as well that was really cool um you had to learn how to do the yeah I took like an introductory um like trial kind of class I'm not patty certified Uh, it was just like a sample type thing it was like two dives and that was in um, southern Thailand, off the island of Kofifi. Beautiful spot. And so, yeah, just checking all that stuff off the bucket list. Good food? Yeah, delicious. Spicy. Thailand's a bit spicy. Um, honestly, I kind of preferred Indian food a little bit better. They just have so many spices and the flavor and texture and stuff. Indian food is delicious. That was, like, my favorite part about India. Yeah, So so at this point... Mm-hmm. You didn't do the yoga thing yet. You're, no, you're so I'm still there. I'm traveling around Thailand. Uh, my buddy Paul leaves from there, and I leave to go to India. And I spent about ten days traveling around um, northern India. I went to Jaipur. I went to Agra, Varanasi. So you're you're alone at this time. Yeah, it's and so that was weird. do they all speak English? Yeah, because. Um, India was under British rule up until 1945. They're pretty, um, they have pretty good English. You know, they're pretty familiar with, with how all that works, you know, Western customs and stuff. And so, yeah, that wasn't as much of a problem. Actually, the hardest was probably in some parts of Thailand in like rural areas and stuff because they're, their alphabet just looks like a bunch of squiggles and gibberish. Like, I can't even type that into a translator or yeah, something. Yeah, no way. And, like, how about budgeting? Like, yeah. just food and stuff along the way. Like, was that I, hard to do? It would have been hard if I had actually stuck to a budget. <laughs> but I'm really bad at budgeting. So I, my whole plan is just save up as much money as you can beforehand and then spend as little as you can while you're doing it. And it, it kind of worked. Um, I definitely s- went over budget on this trip just because I'm like, oh, Asia just has such a rich culture and there's so many cool souvenirs and like gifts and stuff that I want to get for people back home. So I went and uh, used my credit card a little bit and, you know, now I got to pay that off. But to me, that's worth it. You know, that's like I'd rather, you know, take out a little bit of a loan because when am I going to be back? Yeah. And, you know, when am I going to do this again? Like, now is the time, and I'll borrow some money because I'm doing it right now, and now that it's done, I can pay it off. You know, yeah. it's like I'm – it's a, it's more out of my system now. I'm not in as much of a rush to go anywhere. Kind of getting yoga certified was the last thing. I'm like, I can't, um, you know, go back to – to regular life until I do that because I wanna I wanna have that so certification so I can teach. You were just staying in like hotels along the way, or yep, yeah. It's kind of funny how it all worked out. Usually, when I'm traveling, I'll use all my different travel apps. I use like Hostel World and try to find a hostel 
Um, and then from there you'll meet other travelers or you'll find um, recommendations for things to do, places to see, things to eat, you know, whatever. Uh, but when I went to India, it was all different because I tried to get to my hostel and the road was closed because apparently there was like a festival or some kind of event going on. And so the taxi driver was like, drive me around. He couldn't get to the hostel. So he ended up taking me to a travel agent. And from there, they were able to call the hostel and kind of try to get the dialogue going and communicate. And apparently, yeah, the roads are closed. There's no way to get to the hostel. No idea when the roads are going to be open. And you're out of luck. Sorry. So so I, uh, I'm like, all right, well, cancel that reservation. And I guess I'll figure out my plan. I was planning on figuring it all out at the hostel because they have good resources, you know, for planning trips. But I ended up at a travel agent instead. So he kind of helped plan my trip. And um, so he got me like a, a driver to take me around and show me some of the sites and um, lined up all my hotel reservations, um, train tickets, um, uh, a boat ride, a ticket to like a national park. He kind of got all that set up for me ahead of time, which is not the way that I usually travel, but it really worked out well in this case. So I just kind of paid them all up front and yeah. Pretty, pretty good price on everything? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. It's, it was hotels and stuff. So I, it was, it was more expensive than if I had been staying in, uh, hostels and stuff, yeah. but I don't know that I would really have wanted to stay in hostels in India because the conditions, it's, it's, yeah, the, the infrastructure it, is just so. It was probably meant to be, man. Broken out. Yeah. And it's, it was really weird. I was listening to this podcast um, where Tim Ferriss interviews Sharon Salzberg, um, who's like a leader in the yeah, field of, I've heard of, her yeah, of meditation and yeah. stuff. And she was talking about her first trip to India where she went to go study meditation. And she asked for advice from this guru who was traveling America and came to the town where she was at. And she was asking him, like, where should I go um, to study meditation? Like, where do you recommend? And the advice that he gave her was, I think you had best perhaps follow the pretense of accident. And that kind of just stuck with me. I'm like, yeah, follow the pretense of accident. So... Was That's I meant good. to show up at that travel agent? No, it was just kind of an accident. But when you're sitting there and he's got it all laid out for you, yeah, just, I mean, you go for it. You, you know, you go with the flow and you adapt and you just kind of take what opportunities come your way. Because life is, life is like a river, man. It's always changing and moving. And if you try to just stay put or, you know, fight it, you know, you're going to get beaten down. So you got to go with the flow and just you know, opportunities come your way and you're like, yeah, I guess that's what's meant to be. That's where I'm supposed to be. I can't make it to my hostel. This guy's got a trip lined out for me. It's a little bit more than I was planning on spending or maybe even more than I can afford, but here I am. And it just kind of feels like it's meant to be. So you go with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. I would way rather do that than like travel some hostels, man. Yeah. And India is a a weird place. I mean, even just the traffic and the crowds in India and like the infrastructure and there's just garbage everywhere and there's cows everywhere and there's people everywhere and it's loud and chaotic and just things that I had heard beforehand, but it's one of those things, it's different to hear it than it is 
than it is to see it. You know, it's like it's totally different once you're there and you're in it. You're like, whoa, this place is overwhelming, <laughs> you know? Um, so it was really nice to have a guide and a chauffeur and, you know, kind of have someone looking out for me, especially because I was traveling by myself as well. Usually I'll meet people at, at a hostel or something and kind of tag along with them or make friends or, you know, figure it out that way. But yeah, this so, is how it worked so out. The, the yoga thing, this was like, how, how long of a, of a session was this? It was 28 days, 200 hours, and it was basically the whole month of December. Um, once again, I just found it on Google, you know, just, uh, I think it was like yoga retreats or something, yoga booking, something like that, you know, .com, pretty generic name. And just, yeah, did some comparing and stuff. Yeah, was there like good. just one, one main teacher for a bunch of people? Um, there was 10 of us in the class and there was a teacher, a different teacher for every subject. So we had a guru who taught us philosophy. We had um, a guy with like his, his doctorate degree in um, meditation and Hindu studies, teaching us meditation and chanting. Um, we had classes in uh, anatomy and alignment of yoga positions. We had a Hatha yoga class in the morning, Ashtanga yoga at night. Um, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, we did some excursions on the weekend. We did a rafting trip down the Ganges River. That was pretty cool. We did a, um, uh, we, we went and saw the sunrise over the Himalayan mountains. And then after that, hiked down to this, this waterfall. And that was pretty cool as well. Um, we kind of did our own little Christmas celebration as well, since we we're all, you know, like Westerners and foreigners yeah. and stuff. Because they don't do anything for Christmas in India. I didn't even see any decorations outside or nothing. Um, so, yeah, it was nice kind of getting there and having them take care of everything and not having to really pay for much except for souvenirs or if I went out and bought food on my own or something. Because um, at that point I was getting pretty low on money. So I'm like, nice, it's all taken care of. I don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. <laughs> and... Yeah, it was it was really eye opening. It was a good experience. I encourage everyone to do it, even if even if you've never really gotten into yoga before, you have no interest in teaching it. Just from like an educational standpoint, it's really good. I think besides me, there was only like one or two people that actually planned on teaching yoga once they got back to their their hometown. Everyone else was just doing it for educational purposes, and it really is just uh, eye opening. Um, just doing meditation every day, you know, it's those things that like you want to do every day, but it's hard to motivate yourself. And I knew personally, I'm like, if, if I had done it in America, cause they do it sometimes where you just go on the weekends or something, you know, I'm like, I need to do a 30 day intensive where I'm doing it every day and it becomes routine. You know, I need to be doing yoga every day. Otherwise, you know, I'm hard at, I have a hard time motivating myself. I need that accountability. I need it's got to be a ritual. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be a ritual. It's got to be in place. You know, everyone else is doing it, so it'd be weird if I'm like, no, I'm just going to sleep today and not go to class. Like, you're there. You're going to do it. You know, I need that structure. Whereas if I was at home, it's like, oh, I'm kind of tired today. Maybe I'll just sleep in and go to yoga tomorrow. Or, oh, I ran out of time. I'll just eat like a 
uh, garbage breakfast or something, you know, but having them cook all the food for you, having meditation classes, having multiple yoga classes every day, it just, it's a subtle thing, but then once you get home, it kind of hits you a little bit more. Just that awareness of, of what it feels like to move every day and to stretch your body and to stand with good posture, what it feels like to eat rice and vegetables every day, you know, instead of cheese and meat, you know, what it feels like to drink tea every day instead of beer. The, the town that I was in, um, Rishikesh, it's the only place that I'm aware of that is both dry meaning that they don't serve any alcohol. There's no bars anywhere wow. in the town. And the whole town is vegetarian. You can't buy any meat in the whole town. So even those two things by itself, you know, going for a full month of that lifestyle, you know, it, it kind of changes your awareness and your perception of things that you kind of just become accustomed to. It's like, oh, yeah, you're going to meet up with some friends? Yeah, we're going to go hang out at a bar. Well, like, are you thirsty for a beer? Do you really want to get drunk? No, but we're going to a bar. So it's you. Just, it's just what you do, you know. Um, you got eggs and bacon for breakfast or something. You know, it's just what yeah, you do. I, you don't I, almost question it. I'm definitely trying to go gluten free at the moment. Yeah. I it just became a. I started a book which is a dangerous book. <laughs> it is just like it makes you want to cry the whole time. This doctor uh, yeah. is reading. The, the more it's information you know, man. Grain Brain. If you really just want to get your heart broken, <laughs> just yeah. One of the guys yeah. that I've been listening to recently is uh, uh, Dave David something right. The guy from Bulletproof Coffee. Okay. Um, I don't know. Look up his podcast. He he does some good stuff, but he's all for going um, gluten free and get rid of, getting rid of grains from your diet. And I feel like diet's such a tricky one because there's so many things. To get rid of like, uh, get rid of dairy, get rid of grains, get rid of meat, get rid of sugar, get rid of processed foods. You know, it's, and it's all these things are so common in the Western diet. So it's challenging and you almost need to kind of start somewhere. And I don't know, I think the more that you learn as well, the easier it becomes because knowledge is power, man. I, I think that you got to learn and then try, though, too, because yeah. like you sometimes I've tried things that people have said and they don't work for me. Yeah. The yeah. thing I can get down different. for, like me personally, like I still am down for like meat, but I know that like stuff that's like and like got hormones injected into mm-hmm. it and antibiotics, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I stay away from it. But like fatty stuff, like uh, I found fats are great for me i found mm-hmm. that sugar and like bread apparently has got more sugar than like yeah. a freaking can of soda sometimes yeah. and like, it's it's hard to be black and white because everybody's body is different everybody you know responds to different foods differently and there's definitely a whole spectrum of you know what's good and what's bad you know grass-fed steak that's meat but that's good for you or i should say that's a lot better for you than you know a processed pepperoni or sausage oh, or God, something, yeah. you know, like you don't even know, or a hot dog. What's what? What's even in a hot dog? Nobody knows. <laughs> Dude, the last time I, I <laughs> ordered a hot dog, it seriously was the last time. I was at Portillo's, and oh, for some reason, yep. the like end of the thing where it wraps <laughs> off looks like, looks like a freaking thumb. Yeah, it looks like a fingernail on a thumb, and I just, I just go, I cannot I had eat enough. this. Yeah, <laughs> no way. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's definitely a process, and so, so I'm trying to get better at it. Yeah. What what's what are you looking at then right now? Are you looking to start teaching some classes or? Yeah. Um, actually, it's a it's a pretty interesting time that you caught me at because. I'm moving to Milwaukee tomorrow. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Dang, I'm glad I caught you, bro. I know, right? So, I'll be back up there, though. Yeah, dude, I play up there sometimes. It's pretty so. close. It's only like 90 miles. So I'm moving to Milwaukee tomorrow. I got an apartment, and I got a job at a backpacking company called Yellowwood. And I'm really excited about this um, This job. It's like a small family-owned company, um, and they, they only supply certain brands that are eco-friendly or that are sustainable or that have like a, a good mission statement, you know, where they're trying to help the world, you know, basically. Whereas, you know, REI or North Face or Patagonia, some of those bigger companies, while they have a good marketing scheme that makes it look like they're environmentally forward and uh, forward thinking, they still produce their their goods and cheap labor markets overseas, you know, where you have to they have a huge carbon footprint to ship it around the world. And they've just kind of grown beyond their means. And they don't stand, they don't practice what they say they stand for anymore. Yeah. So this company um, that I just got hired at, they, they say that the companies that they, the brands that they don't supply say as much about them as the brands that they do supply, mm. you know. So I'm excited about that. Um, I should be studying there next week sometime. And then I hope to do some yoga classes on the side because I, I kind of had the feeling that I wouldn't be able to get 40 hours of coaching right off the bat. Yeah, not right off the bat. Right away. So I'm like, I got to get a full-time job first. And this I'm pretty excited about the one that I landed. It's right up your alley. Yeah, I know. And they don't mind me taking time off to go test the products, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well... Murph, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, dude. It's... Thank you so much. You were the first non-musical, not that you're not musical. <laughs> I'm but, still working on it. Yeah, but uh, guest on the podcast. But I yeah. just had to have everybody hear your story because I think a lot of people want to travel. Yeah. And uh, I think that... that just hearing about somebody who literally just didn't just make any did excuses, bam, 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 like next thing. That is yep. motivating. So Yeah, and, you know, hit me up. We can do a round three sometime if there's enough uh, public interest. Oh, for or sure. Got more questions, or uh, and I'll, I'll work on my musical skills maybe next time. I'll, oh. I'll show you what I got. <laughs> Absolutely, bro. All right, well, good luck in Milwaukee. Thanks for being on. And uh, everybody, everybody who's listening, have a beautiful rest of your day. Peace.